Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this evening. So if you would take your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 2, we are making our way through the book of Revelation. We are taking our time. I'm not in any rush, as I have said before. Uh, Jesus can teach it himself if he returns in the middle of this Bible study and do a far better job than I could ever do. So until he comes again, we're going to be looking through the book of Revelation as it relates to end time events. This is the apocalyptic book that God has given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John, who writes on the island of Patmos all these different visions and things that he sees and hears. And you have to imagine this guy is now in his 90s is overwhelmed by all the sights and sounds that he is exposed to as the Lord shows him these things that are to come. And uh, we are in chapter 2, and chapter 2 and 3 have to do with seven letters that Jesus Uh, dictates to seven particular churches. So I'm going to go back to the board here and again just orient ourselves. I'm not going to rehash everything I did last week, Uh, but this is the timeline of events from the book of Revelation, and the only part we need to be concerned about right now is Revelations 1, 2, and 3, known as the church age. This is where we presently are. It is the time between when Jesus ascended back into heaven and left then ministry to us to continue and the time of the rapture when Jesus will one day sound a trumpet and believers who are alive at that particular time will leave planet earth and we will be taken up in the twinkling of an eye to be with the Lord. And that is known as the rapture when we are taken from the earth and we don't experience death. We get a glorified body on the way up to heaven. So it's gonna be an amazing day when that happens. And what the earth is going to look like when all believers have been taken is going to be a very strange and unusual thing. But that's where we are right now, the church age. We're living in this time period when we are awaiting the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ is in two stages. The first stage is he only comes in the clouds, sounds the trumpet, calls the church up. And then the second part of his second coming is after the seven years of tribulation, when he returns to the earth, the saints come with him and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What we need to concern ourselves with right now, chapters two and three of Revelation, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. And we've been talking about how these seven letters are important for us to understand in three ways. Number one, that these churches are literal in existence. Each church was an actual church located in Turkey during the first century AD. We're talking about, again, this particular area in the block right there in what is Asia Minor or today Turkey, just south of the Black Sea. And we have these seven cities that are each going to get a letter from Jesus. And they're listed here in Revelations 2 and 3. And starting with Ephesus, it goes in a clockwise direction Uh, Ephesus gets the first letter, Laodicea gets the last. And so in addition to these being literal churches in existence, they also are spiritual in relevance. We read each of these letters with the idea that each church represents spiritual issues relevant to believers today. And we're going to make application every time we go through these, these letters. And then thirdly, it's historical in significance, because when you look at the timeline of events and Although not everything in the book of Revelation is in chronological order, a lot of it is. And so when you're looking at Revelation 2 and 3, you're heading into a time period where you're looking at the historical timeline of the church. When I say historical, it depends where you're standing in that timeline. For us, 
Much of it is historical, but still because of where we are on the timeline, some of it is still prophetic. It's in the future. And when we speak about the historical timeline, this is what we're talking about. These, these seven churches are a picture of an aspect of church history. Because as Jesus begins to dictate these letters, he is pointing out different things that we now have the perspective looking back on church history to recognize, yeah, that, that represents a time period. That represents a time period. That represents a time period. So starting with the church of Ephesus, every event, every major event in church history serves to be a bookend of that particular time period. And so, for example, Ephesus, you have 33 AD where Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and the New Testament church was born. And 100 AD, roughly 100 AD, is when the apostolic age ended, the last of the apostles died. And so Ephesus represents that time period in church history. And Smyrna, the suffering church, 100 to 312 AD, Pergamos, 312 to 606 AD, and on down the timeline. So last week, we finished with Pergamos. We got through Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos. And this is where Pergamos is located. And I just want to real briefly recap the issue of Pergamos that we find here uh, in chapter 2 between verses uh, 12 and 17. And so just as a quick summary, again, each of these letters, Jesus introduces himself with a title. He makes a commendation. He, he commends them about something. Um, he, he also complains about something. And uh, at least out of five out of the seven churches, two of them don't get any complaints from Jesus. And then he mentions a reward for those who are uh, true followers of him. And so when it related to Pergamos, 312 to 606 AD, it represents in church history the period of the state church, the state church. And so Jesus' title in that letter between verses 12 and 17 was him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He commends the fact that they have not renounced their faith despite the martyrdom of a guy named Antipas, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. His complaint, however, is that there's a marriage of the church and the world from the root word gamos. Gamos means marriage, polygamy, polygamos, um, monogamy, monogamos. So that's where we get our... English from that root word in the Greek, gamos, pergamos. And his reward to this church is that they will receive some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Now, again, I'm only recapping this because each of these time periods folds into the next. And so if you don't don't know a little bit about pergamos, we can't get into Thyatira, which is the next letter we're going to read here in a moment. So important events, 312 AD to 606 AD. What, what are these things that are happening 312 to 606 as we move into the next letter, which starts in verse 18, the church at Thyatira. In 312 AD, Constantine becomes emperor of Rome. There was a big power struggle over who would be the rightful emperor in Rome. And after uh, a few different battles, Constantine emerged in 312 AD as the emperor of Rome after a battle that he had successfully won. And um, as many of you know from history, he claims to have had a vision of a fiery cross, and, and he heard in Latin the words, go forth and conquer. And so Constantine took it upon himself that it must have been the Lord who appeared to him in this vision 
and, uh, and told him to go forth and, and conquer. And so he became a convert to Christianity. Remember, the Roman Empire was, was predominantly, almost exclusively polytheistic. And they had adapted their worship of many gods from the Greek Empire before them. And uh, they just renamed the Greek gods and added a few. And so Constantine, for him to come out as a, as a convert to Christianity was a very unusual thing in those days. And what he ends up doing is he elevates Christianity with favored status. Now it is, now Christians are protected. They're not persecuted like they were. I mean, by the thousands, Christians were being killed by Roman emperors before Constantine. And now they have protected favored status. And again, as we mentioned, though, that doesn't really make for a very, uh, you know, heart relationship with Jesus when it just becomes a government, you know, favored uh, status, because then everybody just wants the government favored status and you don't really necessarily want Jesus. And so what begins to happen is the Roman influence of the Roman Empire begins to corrupt the, the purity of the Christian faith and, and Christianity ends up looking more Roman than it does Christian. Now, again, this this in history is playing into, if you've ever wondered why is the Catholic Church referred to as the Roman Catholic Church, it's because it has its roots in Rome. And it has its roots in the fact that after Constantine elevates Christianity to this favored status, uh, then it becomes a state religion in three, a, a, you know, a state religion in 380 AD by Emperor Theodosius I, who issues an edict uh, in, in Latin called De Fide Catholica, and basically he then declares Catholic Christianity as the state religion of the Roman Empire in this time period, 380 AD. And several practices began during this time period that became traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, such as during this time period between 312 and 606 AD, such as praying for the dead, Okay, that's a Catholic doctrine, purgatory. It has no biblical basis. Okay, now I'm going to say some things tonight about the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying it to, you know, in, I, I'm not about just trashing different faiths or religion. I'm just simply about pointing out what the Bible says about things and some of the practices that are inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. If you really believe that the Bible is the handbook for faith and practice, then you have to evaluate every religious tradition or religious practice through the grid of God's Word. That's important for everybody to do. I I shared with you on Sunday about my own faith tradition. Growing up Methodist taught that if you're sprinkled as an infant, you're good to go, and that was taught as water baptism. But despite the fact that John Wesley tried to make some good arguments in favor of infant baptism, at the end of the day, my own tradition conflicted with Scripture. When I began to look into the Bible to see, well, when are people actually water baptized? They're actually water baptized as a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. When I was two weeks old, I could not make a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. So as wonderful as it was that I was sprinkled, that was really more of a dedication, despite what my tradition called it. That was not really water baptism. And so then I was baptized later. So there's going to be things in in your life, if you have any exposure to religious tradition or rituals of any kind, if you haven't been exposed to that and you're kind of coming into this fresh, then welcome to the family. And you, you know, you don't necessarily have some, you know, baggage to unpack. But for those of us who've been exposed to religious tradition, religious rituals, 
you have to begin to examine those things in light of Scripture. Well, what does the Bible actually say about this? And, and then you have to begin to decide what you will practice that is scripturally based and then let go of those traditions that have no biblical basis. And that's hard sometimes because people have their whole identities wrapped up in their faith traditions. And those things can be rich in different ways, but if they're not biblical, why are you doing it? And that's what everybody has to ask himself or herself. Why do we do the things that we do? You know, I've shared this story before, but it, it comes to my mind as I talk about this kind of thing, how this little girl saw her mom as her mom was putting a pot roast into the pan. Her mom cut off both ends of the pot roast and then put the pot roast into the pan. And the little girl said to her mommy, why are you cutting off both ends of the pot roast? She says, I don't know. I just saw my mom do that uh, all my life. My mom would just cut off both ends of the pot roast and then put the pot roast in and discard those ends that she cut off. I think it just makes it juicier. I don't really know. Why don't you go ask grandma? And so the little girl went to grandma. Grandma, mom cuts off both ends of the pot roast before she puts it in the pot. She said, you did that too. Why do you do that? She says, you know, frankly, I don't even know. It's just tradition. I saw my mom do that. She just cut off both ends of the pot roast before she put it in the pot. I think it makes it juicier. So why don't you go ask your great grandma? So the little girl went and asked her great grandma, great grandma, my mom and my grandma both cut off the ends of the pot roast before they put it in the pan. They say it makes it juicier. They learned it from you. Why did you do it? She says, oh, my lands. No, it doesn't make it juicier. I just never had a pot big enough to put it in. <laughs> but it was just generation after generation. They were just doing stuff that they saw done, didn't have any real basis. They just did it because they saw it. And that's sometimes what happens in our faith traditions. We do things just because we see it, we hear it, we learn it, but it doesn't really have any biblical basis. And so we need to decide what we're going to retain, whether or not it's biblical. During this time period, the traditions of the Catholic Church is just praying for the dead, the worship of saints and angels, the worship of Mary, and priests wearing robes and collars to separate themselves from the laity. That's what started to creep into the church. And so what ended up happening is that the, the church, the, the, the Christian church, started then taking on these religious rituals and traditions as the state-run church with its capital in Rome, and then it migrates into the Roman Catholic Church in 606 AD. Now, one of the things that Constantine did when he became emperor was he relocated the capital of the Roman Empire to Byzantium, and he renamed Byzantium Constantinople. And that became the capital of the Roman Empire, and that became the seat of the state church. And then in, in 606... AD, um, what began to happen is that things took on a life of their own as the Roman Catholic Church emerged. Before I recite some of that, let's take a look at where we're heading now, which is the Church of Thyatira. So we're moving from Pergamos now to Thyatira. And if you'll read with me here from chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, it finishes out chapter 2. Here's what it says. Jesus speaking here. He's dictating this to the church in Thyatira, verse 18, and to the angel or pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, 
These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes... And keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come now to the church of Thyatira, which is nicknamed the idolatrous church. In my Bible, it has a subtitle, the corrupt church. You can pick whatever you want. It's not endearing, whichever one you choose. And um, the time period in church history that this literal church ends up reflecting is between 606 AD and 1517 AD. Now, in 606, the Roman Catholic Church emerges and is ongoing today. And in 1517, you have the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther, a a Gregorian monk, uh, takes issue with uh, a lot of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he has 95 problems with the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that is, in in the Reformation uh, opinion, a combination of... um, the Word of God and human man-made rituals that have been added to the Word of God and thus uh, have corrupted the simplicity uh, of Scripture and have made faith not just in Jesus alone by faith alone, but has made it something more than that. It becomes a works-oriented religion. Whenever you add anything to the, the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, if you add any human component to that, you've just corrupted the, the message of the cross. And it's easy to happen um, when faith traditions and rituals start to take on a life of their own, which is what happens during this time period. And, and so uh, the Protestant Reformation is Martin Luther's objection. So he, he nails his 95 thesis. He has 95 objections to the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. He nails it on the, the, the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany in October the 31st, 1517. And thus the, the Protestant Reformation begins and the Protestant Church splits off from the Roman Catholic Church. We'll talk more about that next week. But, but let's focus on the beginning and, and the the time period between 606 and 1517. Um, First, a little bit about Thyatira. 
The only other reference to Thyatira, this city, outside of the book of Revelation is one reference in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, a woman by the name of Lydia, Paul's first convert to Christianity in the city of Philippi, a woman by the name of Lydia was from Thyatira. Her occupation, the Bible tells us in Acts 16, gives us a little bit of insight into the city's famous commodity because in Acts 16, it says that Lydia was a a dealer of purple cloth. Uh, This particular city, Thyatira, was known for its purple dye. It's what made this city famous. And it was derived from a shellfish that was indigenous to the area. By crushing this particular shellfish, it would make this purplish, reddish purplish dye. Today, that color is called Turkish red. Thyatira is situated about 30 miles halfway between Pergamos and Sardis. And Thyatira was first established as a Macedonian colony by Alexander the Great after the destruction of the Persian Empire. Today, Thyatira is the modern city called Akasar, and it has a population of about 50,000. The city was riddled with idolatry. That's going to be obviously the theme of this. This letter to this church, Jesus is calling out their affection for idols. And that's what Thyatira was known for. And so Jesus alludes to it in this letter by, by mentioning the name Jezebel. He calls out a woman named Jezebel. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Thyatira was known for having a temple for fortune tellers presided over by a powerful female oracle. So it could be that Jesus is referring to this particular woman or what Jezebel represents from Old Testament scriptures. There were more commercial guilds in Thyatira, a guild is kind of like a union, than in any other Roman province because they were such an industrialized city that was known for their great commercial trades. So They had guilds for dyers, um, wool workers, linen workers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, and bronzesmiths. They all had their own little union. And that's just what was happening in Thyatira. Now, during this particular time period, 606 to 1517, let's talk a little bit about the, the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church here. Um, here's a list of just a few things. I had to use small font to get it all in. A few things that um, were introduced into the church because of the Catholic traditions. The first thing I want you to note is that the title of Pope was given to Boniface III by Roman Emperor Phocas in 606 AD. That's why, for purposes of a timeline, we talk about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church in 606 AD. Now, you, you talk to a dye-in-the-wool Roman Catholic, they will say, what are you talking about? The Roman Catholic Church was, was way before 606 AD. You're centuries off, and Peter was our first pope. That's what they will tell you. Um, but what we're talking about here is this, that in the first several centuries since Constantine and Theodosius made Christianity, a state religion, there were different bishops who oversaw different churches in the regions of the Roman Empire. But something happened in 606 AD that made the Roman Catholic Church 
much like the modern Roman Catholic Church today, and that is that when Boniface III became bishop, Emperor Focus wrote a letter to him making an imperial edict as the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, and Focus said to Boniface III, I now deem you as the bishop, the universal bishop over all churches of the Roman Empire, and thus he gave him the title Pope. And so that's why when we talk about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, we're going to date it more 606 AD, although the Roman Catholics will say, no, it's first century because Peter was, was our first pope. But this is what happens here. In 606 AD, uh, Sabinian, who was the last bishop of Rome, dies. He's replaced by Boniface III, and then Focus makes this imperial decree of the Roman government proclaiming Boniface III as the head of all churches. So he is given this universal title, and Emperor Focus then transfers the title from Constantinople back to Rome. And Boniface III then takes his position as bishop of Rome, universal bishop or pope over the church. And Catholicism is formally born in its final evolved form. But the East, okay, so now you have a separation of the Roman Empire. You have those who disagree in the East with Constantinople as the capital and those who embrace this in the West with Rome as the capital, and there becomes a bit of a power struggle in in the centuries to follow. Um, The East, Constantinople, never accepts Rome's claims and finally split fellowship with Rome in 1054 AD, forming the Eastern Orthodox Church versus the Roman Catholic Church in the West. But you have all these other doctrines, too, as you see listed on the screen there. You have the doctrine of kissing the Pope's foot, which was um, proclaimed in 709 AD as a ritual. And by the way, if you go today to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, there's a bronze, bronze statue of St. Peter. He's seated, and people who make pilgrimage there continue to touch or kiss his feet, so much so that over the centuries, the toes on the right foot of the Apostle Peter are gone. They've been rubbed off. They've been rubbed off by everybody making pilgrimage and touching it. Bronze toes are gone now off of Peter's feet because of people touching and kissing his feet because they're recognizing him in their tradition as the first pope. Also, the use of holy water was implemented in 850 AD. Mechanical praying with beads or the rosary invented by Peter the Hermit in 1090 AD. Transubstantiation established in 1215 AD. What is transubstantiation? If you don't have a Roman Catholic background, you may not be aware that when Catholics take mass, they take the elements, the wafer and and the, the cup, they believe that there is a miraculous event that happens whereby when one ingests the wafer and the cup, the wine, that it miraculously becomes the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Now, I've had people, as I have explained this, I've had some Roman Catholics email me, so don't email me, please. I, I get enough emails. Um, unless you have a happy email. Uh, but, uh, but I've had Roman Catholics email me and saying that is not what we believe. And I've had to actually cut and paste out of, the, out of the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church their own doctrine in print. This is what Roman Catholics believe. That when you take the wafer and the cup of wine, 
that, you, that, that there is the belief that, I don't believe this, I don't believe Scripture teaches this, but there's this belief that you are actually ingesting that it becomes miraculously the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And it is, it is because in John chapter 6, Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples, he, he talks to them about eating of his flesh and, and, and drinking of his blood, and, and some f- leave him because they think this is a difficult teaching, and, and Jesus clarifies in the end, and he, and he speaks about how these things I've spoken to you are spirit. In other words, he's saying that we have to, we have to be consumed with him. But it isn't the literal idea that we're consuming him by like partaking of his body and partaking of his blood, but we, in a, in a faith, in a spiritual sense, if you really are a follower of Christ, we must be consumed with him. That he can't just be relegated to the fringe of our lives. We have to be consumed with him. That's what he means there in John chapter 6. But the Roman Catholic Church took it to be very literal and then therefore teaches transubstantiation. That there's this, this, this molecular thing that happens in the process of receiving the communion elements whereby you are actually ingesting the flesh and the blood of Jesus. I don't believe it, but that's what transubstantiation teaches. And then the Bible was forbidden to laymen. Only the priest could read the Bible. That was 1229 AD. In fact, those of you who grew up Catholic, you know, if you're old enough to know, that the Mass was completely taught in Latin up until the 1960s. I mean, you could, if you would go to Mass before whatever the year was in the, in the mid-60s, you would sit there and hear the entire thing in Latin and not even, even understand a whole thing, anything about it. So not only were Catholics discouraged from reading their Bibles because you, you're not able, so they would say, to interpret it the way that a, a priest could, okay, which isn't, which isn't true. You've been given the same spirit. You can read your Bibles, understand your Bibles, and pray for understanding the same way that I can as a pastor, any priest can. Um, but, you know, the Bible was forbidden to laymen. Only the priest could, could read the Bible. So, I, you know, I can't tell you how many people with Roman Catholic backgrounds would come to Cornerstone and say to me, that's so refreshing to bring my Bibles. I've never understood my Bible. And that's because you're not encouraged to read your Bibles. You're encouraged to listen to a priest tell you what your Bible says. Um, but, you know, there's only one mediator between God and man, and, and it's Christ Jesus. And I only am trying as a pastor to be a facilitator teaching, using a gift of teaching to, for us to study God's Word together. But as I've said on many occasions, remember, Paul pointed out the fact that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because the Bereans searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Even the apostle Paul commended a group of people for their diligent pursuit of the Scriptures to verify what he was saying was true. I encourage you to do the same thing. Don't take what I say at face value. Read your Bibles for yourselves. Study your Bibles. There's great resources out there now, lexicons and, and Greek and Hebrew that'll translate for you, and, and you can read your Bibles and become educated in what the Scriptures say. This is important for all of us to grow in our faith to know God's Word. Now, in the church of Thyatira here, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, but he identifies himself as the Son of God with eyes of flame and feet like brass. Uh, This is the only time in the book of Revelation that the title Son of God is used, and uh, Jesus uses it uh, in conjunction with his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass because he is introducing himself in this letter as the righteous judge. When his eyes are on fire, he's upset about something, okay? 
That's the idea. Feet of bronze. Bronze is a metal in Scripture that is always um, meaning judgment. He's coming here as the righteous judge. He wants to judge this church because of their idolatry. And, and so he, he comes here uh, with anger towards Thyatira's sin. But he commends them. He commends them about five things in the text here. He commends them for their works, their love, their service, their faith, and their patience. And he adds there in verse 19, the last are more than the first. In other words, their good works are increasing. And he likes that about them. And he commends them for these different things. It, It is remarkable, by the way, that none of the preceding three churches were commended for their love. But Thyatira is in addition to their works and their service and their faith and their patience. The word service in verse 19 is the Greek word diakonia. We get our English word deacon. Deacons serve in the church. They are lay ministers. They are people who use their gifts to minister to people. And, and, and Jesus is commending them for all this. You're ministering to people. You're loving people. You're serving people. You have faith. You have patience. But then he has this big complaint. And the complaint against them is that they are tolerant of sin. And in particular, they are tolerant of this Jezebel issue where authority is, is equal to Scripture. They, are, they, they seduced God's people with idolatry and a system of works. Now, again, there's, there's a matter of interpretive debate as to whether or not Jezebel is a real person or only a biblical type from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 16, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel becomes the wife of the seventh king of Israel, whose name is King Ahab. Ahab should never have married her. Why? Because she was a pagan, idolatrous woman. Uh, She was not a Jew who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible says that she was the daughter of a king of the Sidonians, whose name was Ethbaal. Ethbaal means, her dad's name means, with Baal. So his very name is a pagan name. She is the daughter of a pagan king. And Josephus, the first century Roman historian, says that Ethbaal was a priest of the occult. And so this is the kind of home that Jezebel grew up in. And in fact, in 2 Kings 9.22, it specifically says in 2 Kings 9.22 that Jezebel practiced idolatry and witchcraft. Names those very things. Ahab, the king of Israel, marries her. Guess what? She introduces this from her own upbringing into the nation of Israel. And Ahab acquiesces. And he promotes idolatry in the land of Israel this time. And it's a very terrible time. It's a low point in Israel's history. All the idolatry is the result of Jezebel's influence to the king of Israel. Now, when Jesus calls out this church about the Jezebel problem, he either means that there is a literal woman and some... Some commentaries believe that there was a a literal woman in the church whose name was probably Sambathi, and that she's like a Jezebel because she has the same spirit, or Jesus is actually saying that you are allowing idolatry in the church similar to the time of Jezebel, or it can be a combination of both, that she was a real woman in the church of Thyatira who so persuaded the believers to engage in a system of idolatry that Jesus compared her to the Jezebel who had married King Ahab and seduced a nation into terrible idol worship. Either way, it speaks of a bad thing, idolatry, idolatry in the church, and they tolerate it. Now, listen, you, you have to be aware that when you look at this particular timeline in church history, 
that the Roman Catholic Church, again, I'm, I'm not saying anything to disparage, I'm just pointing out the facts. There are a lot of idols in the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of icons, a lot of statues, a lot of praying to these things, praying to saints, praying to Mary, idolizing people in that sense. And so it fits here in the timeline of of church history. The Roman Catholic Church is steeped in idolatry. It is a works-oriented religious system. I know that there are some Roman Catholics who truly believe in Jesus and they're going to heaven. I get that. Um, There are true believers in every, you know, there, there are some misguided Methodists and some true believers. There are some misguided Baptists and true believers. There are, some, you know, in every aspect of religious circles, you, you do have people who are true believers. But unfortunately, in the Roman Catholic Church, the, the combination of a, a love for Jesus as Savior and the adaptation of idolatrous practices make for um, a very corrupt religious system, if I, if I can say it that way. I mean, I, again, I, you know, I'm probably going to get emails on this, but I'm just, I'm just trying to speak the truth. There needs to be an understanding that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with how many good things you do or penance or um, ways that you try to compensate by doing other good things to make up for the bad things. Jesus Christ died for all the bad things. We're all bad people who all need a Savior, and that's how you get saved, by trusting Jesus Christ. You need to stop praying to Mary. You need to stop praying to different saints. The rosary beads are useless. You can't pray somebody out of purgatory. They make a decision, and they die, and their fate is sealed, so they need Christ now. That's when when you should be praying for them. And all this other stuff that have been incorporated into the Roman Catholic Church have done nothing more than corrupt the true and simple message of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone, okay? And those of you who've come out of that background know what I'm talking about. You know more than anybody what I'm talking about. And, and so Jesus says here in this letter, in verse 21 and 22, he says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. I will cast her into a sickbed into great tribulation, unless they repent. Now, I don't believe he's suggesting that all Catholics are going to end up going through the Great Tribulation. Rather, it means that anyone within the church who is found to be in spiritual fornication of works and idols, because that's what it really is, rather than a personal relationship of grace with the Lord Jesus Christ, will suffer tribulation. To believe in a religious system of works that denies the finished work of Christ is a corrupt religious system. Now, he's shares rewards here, and I know our time has escaped us, so let me just mention on the reward side here. Verses 24 and on, Jesus speaks to the rest who do not have this doctrine. So again, there's a remnant. There's always a remnant. Who have not known the depths of Satan, who hold fast to what you have until I come. Throughout time, God has always had his remnant everywhere. Those who hold fast to him when others may not. And the promise that Jesus gives the church of Thyatira for their faithful perseverance are twofold. Number one, power over the nations or authority to rule. Believers will one day rule with Christ. In Revelation 20 verse 4, John says that he sees a vision here of people on thrones who have been given authority to judge. 
And that's the saints. We judge with the Lord in administering his justice in the earth during the millennial kingdom. And the second thing that he promises here in this letter to those who overcome, to the remnant, he says, I will give them the morning star. Now, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, you can just write in the margin of your Bible there where he talks about, I'm going to give him the morning star to those who overcome. Um, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus says that he himself is the morning star. So he's basically promising the ultimate prize to faithful believers himself. That's what he's saying here. But there's a special meaning to morning star. When he uses this language here, when he talks about the morning star, it is actually a fulfillment of one of the last passages of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, where the prophet Malachi makes this glorious promise of the rising of the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, with healing in his wings. And Malachi sees the day when Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, with healing in his wings, will come as the morning star, a fulfillment of the prophet Malachi, to bring ultimate healing to our souls. And so, the church of Thyatira... Jesus has some complaints, and he has some commendation, but he always ends with a reward to all who overcome. Verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll pick it up there again next week. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to... Bless what we've heard. Lord, take your word now and minister to our hearts in whatever way we need to receive it today. As we leave here tonight, may we take to heart these things. What are you saying to us? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We want to have a hearing ear, Lord, to hear what would you be saying to us tonight? How would these things apply to us? Maybe some have come out of a tradition that has been very works-oriented. And maybe this is new, Lord, the idea of just trusting you by faith, that what you did on the cross satisfied the wrath of God and made the way possible for us to be forgiven and to be saved. Deliver us from a system of works where we think we have to work our way to heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you've taken that burden off of us where we can't do anything to improve upon the cross. So why are, we, why are we always trying to work our way there? Instead, Lord, may our good works show that we are saved, not doing good works because we think that helps us to be saved. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you first loved us and gave your life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen and amen.